0: Well, it's still close enough to uh, wish you a belated happy Australia Day. Uh, I just need to confess up front that we didn't eat lamb. Um, we actually went out for Japanese, so I'm not sure what that says. <laughs> but um, I do feel quite bad about it, so much that I went and bought lamb yesterday and we're going to have it soon. <laughs> so there you go. Um, interesting though, listener. Australia Day this year... Uh, and probably for a few years, but I think it was a little bit more pronounced this year, revealed some cracks or a lack of clarity that seems to be developing around our national identity as Australians. The question, who are we as Australians, or what unites us, or what does it look like going forward, is being asked, perhaps in a way that it hadn't been previously. And it's important to say, I think, that the answers to these questions are many and varied, and they are important, aren't they? They are important. But there is a much more important question that we're looking at today. It's not the question of our national identity, but of our personal and collective identity as human beings. We want to think about the question today, who am I? Who are we as people? How can we know our true identity? No matter, as we heard earlier, of our age or stage in life, whether we're you know, being rocked in a pram right at the moment and don't even know what the heck's going on and where we are, just, you know, it's good to have a sleep, or whether at the other end of our life, who are we? What's our true identity? no matter of our ethnicity, where we're from, our history, our gender, or anything else you might think of. Who am I? It's the age-old existential question, question of existence, and they're deeply important questions, the answers to which, whatever conclusion we come to, will actually profoundly shape our lives. And the good news is this. We don't have to grope around in the dark for answers to that question. We don't have to keep looking around in our society to try and work it out, what it is, and trying to listen to the many and varied multiple voices saying confusing and conflicting things often. And we certainly don't have to look inside ourselves and kind of try and gauge our feelings, which also are up and down and all over the place, to answer this question, who are we? God in his kindness has revealed these things to us for our good so that we might flourish as human beings, as people made in his image. So will you turn to one of the places where God has made this pretty clear and that's Psalm 139. We're going to be continuing or finishing our four-week series that we've been looking at in some of the Psalms called Songs of Hope. Psalm 139 Perhaps familiar to some of you, perhaps precious to some of you, perhaps unfamiliar to you. I'm reading from the ESV, it'll be on the screen, but it'd be great to have your Bible open so that you can follow along as we kind of work our way through it after reading it and praying together. Psalm 139 says to the choir master, so it's a song to be sung, that's the first thing we see, and it's a Psalm of David. Verse 1, O Lord, you have searched me and known me The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Verse 13, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. O that you would slay the wicked, O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Would you join me in prayer? Father, as we come to your word this morning, we come to uh, this matter of our identity which is so foundational to the lives that we have and the lives that we will live. So would you speak to us clearly from your word here today? Would you remind us of, of these things That are so important. Would you would you comfort us where we need comforting, and would you unsettle us where we need unsettling? We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look at this very famous psalm together, perhaps very familiar to you, we're going to see four things this morning, four things that speak to the question of our identity of who we are and why we're here. And here they are. Number one, God knows us perfectly. Actually, I haven't got my clicker, so I feel like, you know, not only did I not have lamb and I'm incomplete on Australia Day, I'm incomplete on Sunday too. So if someone can find that and bring it up, that would be fantastic. Thanks, Justin. me just go back to the covering slide. Thanks, Barry. So God knows us perfectly, number one. Number two, God surrounds us completely. Thanks, Justin. God has made us wonderfully, and God judges righteously and saves graciously. They're the four things we're going to see this morning. So firstly, God knows us perfectly, and we see that in verses 1 to 6. And actually, when we unpack these few verses, you know what? We should land exactly where David lands in verse 6. Have a look there. What does he say? Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. What's he talking about? Well, let's slow down and have a look. In verse 1, he addresses God as the Lord. Notice it's capital L-O-R-D. It's the great name of God. The name that he revealed to Moses at the burning bush. Yahweh, the almighty God, the glorious God, the great warrior king. He says to him that he has searched him and known him. This great God that seems so transcendent, David says, Oh Lord, you have searched me and you know me. God knows David. He knows who he is. He knows everything about him. He knows every fibre of his being. You might say God knows David better than he knows himself. This is what we call God's omniscience that god is all knowing but it's not just kind of just knowledge is it there's there's this relational tone to this oh lord you have searched me and you know me as he continues he describes the extent of this knowledge he says as i rise up you know when i sit down and when i rise up david knows god knows what david does and he knows when david does it Second half of that verse, he says, You discern my thoughts from afar. Oh, my goodness. He knows what David thinks. Not only does he know what he does, he knows what he thinks. Verse 3, You search out my path and my lying down, and you're acquainted with all my ways. He knows where David goes, and he knows when David rests. He knows everything about David. He knows all his ways. Verse 4, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all Even before David speaks, the Lord knows what he's going to say. He knows every aspect of David's life. Why? Well, because he's sovereign over it. Look at verse 5. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Ultimately, David's life is under the sovereign hand of the almighty and all-knowing God. God knows David. He knows who he is, everything about him. He knows David better than he knows himself. And the same is true of us, of all of us. God knows us perfectly down to the finest detail. Which is astonishing, isn't it, when you think about it? How many people are in the world at the moment, just now? Has anybody done a count recently? Don't worry, Google has. They say it's just over 8 billion people are on this planet right now. And yet the Lord knows you and me perfectly. Perfectly. He knows us better than... We know ourselves. We might be confused about who we are. We mightn't have clarity about who we are. But God's not confused. And God doesn't lack any clarity about you. He knows you. He knows who you are. Which is precisely why we should land where David landed in verse 6. What does David say? Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, I cannot attain it. He's essentially saying all the circuits of my brain are exploding right now as I put all this together. It's too much for me to get my head around. It's too wonderful, it's too high, it's too lofty, it's above me. We might say it's beyond me and it is... And again, we should land where David does. God knows us perfectly. So, two things each point generally. Something unsettling about it (laughs) and something comforting about it. Firstly, unsettling. As we see that, we may be somewhat unsettled because we may feel somewhat exposed at this point. Which is exactly the case, right? You know, none of you, I'm sure, if I had that kind of knowledge, would like me to add an extra slide to our PowerPoint this morning and put it up on the screen and say, "Hi, this is uh, such and such as uh, thoughts for the last week." Oh, by the way, this is the deeds that they did, also that they thought nobody knew about. And now we all know about. None of us would like that to happen, right? But that's exactly the case here. God knows. He knows your thoughts even before you think them. He knows what you say before you even say them. We are somewhat exposed in the light of this and in the presence of this all-knowing God. Our rebellious, our rebellious hearts are exposed because if we're honest, we're actually largely all about autonomy, aren't we? Doing our own thing, our own way, at our own pace when we like and who are you to tell me what to do I'm sovereign over my life, thank you. But David's clear, there's only one sovereign in this universe and it's not us. And it's not me and it's not you. It's the Lord. Even David said that with all the authority that he had as king. You hem me in behind before and you lay your hand on me. So that's a little bit unsettling, but it's also very comforting, isn't it? that God knows you deeply and profoundly in a way that no one else can. Isn't that wonderful? And can I just suggest to you that this is what you were made for, to know and love God and to be perfectly known and loved by God. I don't even know myself that well, but he knows me and he loves me. And the one who knows us like no one else can is also sovereign over our lives. I mean, if I want anybody to be in charge of my life and what happens in it and where I go and and the things that come my way, don't I want that to be the one who knows me perfectly and loves me deeply? He is the one who hems us in behind and before and he is a good father. So he always has our good in mind. God knows us perfectly, and secondly, he surrounds us completely. This is about God's omnipresence. Omni meaning all, and presence meaning presence. Pretty obvious, right? Not rocket science. So God is everywhere, presence. Not only is David saying to God that his knowledge of him is, in, is comprehensive, but his presence is inescapable. Where shall I go to flee from your spirit? He said, where where shall I go? Well, answer, nowhere. (laughs) Where can I go? There's nowhere. Because God's presence is everywhere. And again, David unpacks what this means as he lives surrounded by the omnipresent God. Have a look at verse 8. If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. First he goes with the vertical. So if I get as high as I could possibly go, you know, kind of think as many thousands of miles as you want out into the universe. If I go that, that direction, you're there. And if I make my bed here, if I actually go into the place of the deepest parts of the earth, the place of the dead even, you're there. Or what about if we go horizontal? Okay, well, let's have a look at that. If I take the wings of the morning which I think if I've got it correctly is to head east as far as you can go. And if I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, so from Israel, the uttermost parts of the sea is west, either direction, full extremity. Oh, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Well, maybe darkness. If I say darkness shall cover me and the light about me is night. Oh no, hang on. Even the darkness is not dark to God. You know, that which perhaps might normally shroud us from someone else's view doesn't shroud us from God's view. He's there too. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, and the darkness is as light to you. David makes it clear, doesn't it, that God surrounds him completely. In other words, he's saying this My life is lived. In your presence. <laughs> or as some have said, we live before the very face of God. Wow. That might shift things a bit from Monday to Friday, don't you reckon? If we let that land and live that out. Unsettling. This might actually expose what we could call our practical atheism. That yes, we believe in the Lord Jesus and we trust him with our lives for salvation and so on, but sometimes day to day we live as if he's not there. Or we compartmentalise his presence. So yeah, when, I, when I'm having my quiet time reading my Bible in the morning and prayer, then you know, I'm in the presence of God there. Or when I gather with God's people, you know, the, it's all about the presence of God and, and, and I conduct myself a certain way. But oh, Monday at three o'clock when I'm at work and there's a conflict between my supervisor and myself, well, God's not interested in that. Or over here in the dark... When no one's looking, I click on that screen or I commit this act and that's not in the presence of God. Somehow I feel like I act like he doesn't see that. But David would say otherwise, wouldn't he? Where can I go to flee from your spirit? And let me add another question to that. Why would I flee from this good and gracious God who has rescued me and made me his own and adopted me as his child and promised me eternity and forgiven my sins through his son? Why would I flee? Would I rather not flee to him than from him? Comforting. God is with us no matter what. No matter how we feel. Whether we feel far from him or not. Whether we perhaps even feel maybe abandoned by him. And some of the psalmists cried out kind of from such a place. Why have you forsaken me, O God? But he's everywhere present and he's with us. Even in the storms and the difficulties of this life. And you've got to love verse 10. Even there your hand shall lead me. And your right hand shall hold me. Oh wow. How tender is that? In the midst of whatever we find ourselves in. He hasn't gone. I will look for his leading and lean on his arm. At that point, he leads you, and his desire is to hold you in that season. And if that wasn't enough, God lo- knows us perfectly, surrounds us completely, but He's also made us wonderfully. And it's all good, but I think this is just amazing. So we've seen our lives lived in the full knowledge and the presence of God, but notice now that David speaks of our lives even before we took our first breath. That our lives, our existence, find their genesis in God and by his hands. That, get this, before you existed in this world, you existed in the mind and heart of God. wow have a look with me at verse 13 for you formed my inward parts you knitted me together in my mother's womb not sure how many surgeons we have in the room but I'm pretty sure if you do an incision down here and go like that you'll see a whole bunch of inward parts what's David saying you formed my inward parts I'm not a medical person but this I know there's kidneys in there and there's livers and there's hearts and there's lungs and spleens for you formed my inward parts and you knitted me together in my mother's womb, what a picture I'm, how involved is God in your coming into being <laughs> He knitted you together. I think the word can also be translated embroidery. Now, I'm not even going to go there because I don't know anything about embroidery, but some of you do, right? He knitted you together in your mother's womb. A little lady who says, "My frame, verse 16, sorry 15, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth." In verse 16, get this, you saw my unformed substance. When you were a blob, there was no form or shape, nothing for the ultrasound to pick up. God saw your unformed substance. He saw us when there was no form to us, when nothing else could detect us. God saw you. Now it's been quite a while since we uh, had the experience of childbirth in our immediate family. There's been some further down the track, but uh, it's a number of years, but I'll never forget something that just almost knocked me over. Each time, and I want to describe it as something like a sense of the divine. That as this little one was born and took their very first breath, there were like the fingerprints of God on this event. Am I the only one to feel like that in that moment? It's astonishing. Astonishing. Now it kind of evaporates that sense of the divine when your little one is screaming down the house at 3am and has done so for the last five nights in a row. doesn't feel like a sense of divine right then. But nonetheless, when they arrive in this world and take their first breath, which is precisely what David is saying about himself, isn't it? In verse 14, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. See, if what David says here about himself lands for us about us, as it did for him, or any time a little one is born, any time the pram is wheeled through the door with another one, which seems to happen reasonably often around here, hence the 80-plus kids, which is, we thank God's awesome, right? There's a, there ought to be a sense of awe and reverence, not of the child, but of the God who brought this little one into being and knitted them together. Praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And more than that, he says of God that he actually planned all his days. Long before he had his first day, God planned all his days. Verse 16, you saw my unformed substance in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Before there was one, God knew them all. Wow. Now, as you know, Michelle and I had long service leave last year and we went north and we saw lots of incredible things. We were frequently and consistently amazed at God's creation. Waterfalls, cliffs, ranges, stars like you've never seen. But I was reminded this week as I was looking at this that God, when he created everything, saved his best work till last, didn't he? Till when he made us In his own image and likeness. Everything else was good. Every time, every day, he created something. God saw it. It was good. But this day, God saw it and said, This is very good. Let's go with the comforting first and then the unsettling second. How do you see yourself in the morning when you look in the mirror? when your hair might be all over the place if you've got any and the sleep in your eyes and maybe you're not at your best. I wonder if fearfully and wonderfully made comes into your mind at that point. Probably not. But maybe it should a bit more. Maybe it should a bit more. If it lands for us, it'll do some wonderful things for us. It will be an antidote to self loathing. Won't it? And self loathing, friends, is rife in our culture and in our society. And there are many people turning up at psychologists and so on around our city. With the fruit of self loathing, which can be all sorts of things, which none of which I probably need to tell you about because you know. Fearfully and wonderfully made. It's a tragedy, isn't it, that we don't think about that more often? It's also an antidote to forever wanting to be like someone else. You know, I wish I was taller or shorter or stronger or, you know, more buff or, 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 or you know, I had different, you know, this or something else. Fearfully and wonderfully made. It's the basis for us to be happy in our own skin. You know, isn't it nice when you hear someone say that about someone else? Oh, they're really happy to be in their own skin. They're just content with who they are. It also has a word to our culture, doesn't it? In another way in particular. Notice David says that God was the one who decided when his life began and his life ended. That's God's job. To do that. And yet our culture wants us to play God and to be intimately involved in both those decisions at both ends of life. But we want to have a biblical worldview, don't we? And be compassionate to those who have perhaps experienced that, but to be convicted that that's something that we want to turn away from and we want to hold out the wonder of God's sovereignty and providence and place in both being the creator of our lives and the sustainer of them. Unsettling, well, if our very existence comes from God, then what ought to be our response to him? Obvious answer, and then the second follow-up question is, well, what's it been? What does David say? I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. That's the right response, but it's not often ours, is it? I'm sure it wasn't David's at times either. Have we done things our own way as if we were self creating and self sustaining? There's that practical atheism again. You know, we believe certain things, but functionally we're living like atheists sometimes. Which leads us to the last thing we see here this morning. It's not quite as warm and fuzzy. God judges justly and saves graciously. Notice what he says in verse 19. O that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It's kind of obvious, isn't it, when you think about it? I mean, it sounds sounds a bit harsh and we'll come back to that. But think about it for a second. If God knows everyone perfectly, every thought, every word, every deed, and if he sees it all, if he is inescapably present in his world and everything that happens, happens before the very face of God, and if God gave to all of us our existence, if he is the giver and sustainer of our lives, then one thing you must conclude is this, human rebellion and evil must be dealt with by him. If he doesn't deal with it, what kind of God is he? If it all happens in front of him and he blinks at it and turns a blind eye to it, what kind of God would he be? This here is what's called an imprec it's hard to say even, an imprecatory prayer. There you go, I got it. Which is simply a prayer asking God to be just to bring his justice to his world. And here it's to bring judgment on those who hate him. It sounds kind of harsh, and it is. But before we go there quickly, let me just ask you a couple of questions. Let's ask ourselves a couple of questions to try and get our head around what David's saying here. Do you want evil in this world to be dealt with justly and finally? Honest question. I'm guessing the answer is probably yes. Do you think that human courts can produce perfect and final justice? I'm guessing the answer's probably no. Do you want to be the one who determines what's just? Or would you prefer God to do that? I think we'd prefer God to do that because I'm not that good at getting it right and I certainly don't see everything and neither do you. That's precisely what David's asking for and it's actually funnily enough what we ask for when we pray the Lord's Prayer. Did you realise that? How's the Lord's Prayer go? I'm not going to say the whole thing but it says in one line your kingdom come your will be done on earth As it is in heaven. And when we pray that prayer, we're asking that God's kingdom and salvation would come on earth as it is in heaven, but we're also asking that His justice would come on earth as it is in heaven. That's what David's asking for, but do notice what he says in verse 23 and 24. In the midst of that prayer, what does he say? Search me, O God, and know my heart, try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me. What's he saying? Well, he's saying, left to himself, there's every chance he's going to end up on the wrong side of God's justice. Every chance. That his thoughts, which God knows, are not what God would, would uh, want, that will, not what he would want displayed on the screen if he had one. That what he has done in the sight of God, in his presence, is worthy of judgment. You just gotta think of Bathsheba, right? That God is the giver and sustainer of life. David has not perfectly given him the honor that's due to him. And so he prays this. And he's saying, Please expose my sin. And lead me to eternal life. And this is a prayer that God delights to answer. Yes, God judges justly, and we want Him to be the one who does that because no one else can do it. But God saves graciously, and we're, how glad are we that He does that? And again, no one else can do that. No one can judge justly, no one can save perfectly or completely. And so David's asking for both. And so should we. The Apostle John puts it this way, coming from another angle. If we say we have no sin, what happens? We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Search me, O God, show me. I don't want to be blinded by it. I don't want to be in a place where I've deceived myself and I say I don't even have any sin. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all righteousness. Lead me in the way everlasting. So as we wrap up this morning and I would encourage you to you know, keep thinking about this psalm today and maybe read it regularly if you're losing a bit of a sense of who you are if you're you know, kind of wobbling around a bit in, your, in a sense of your identity then come back to this psalm how good is it that we don't have to grope around in the dark wondering who we are none of us do We don't have to look to the world around us and listen to the many confusing and even conflicting voices. And we don't have to rely on our fluctuating feelings within us which constantly change. We have a God who knows us perfectly, better than we know ourselves. We have a God who surrounds us and sees us with absolute clarity, who loves us and who made us to be the people that we are. But most wonderful of all, though we have often lived as practical atheists, though we have all rebelled against him, seeking to run our lives our own way, and though we haven't given thanks to him, the one who gives and sustains our very existence, he not only knows us better than we know ourselves, but he loves us more deeply than we dare to dream. He sent his son to die for us, that he might lead us in the way everlasting, that we might have eternal life and that he might redeem us and restore us to the people we were created to be. Verse 10. Not verse 10, verse 14. I praise you. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Friends, may our souls know it very well. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we come to you and... We want to thank you, Lord, that you are a good and kind and generous and faithful God. Father, you have made us, you have knitted us together in our mother's wombs. You have seen us even before anyone else or anything else could see us. And you have loved us and sent your son into the world to redeem us. Lord, we have turned against you. We have turned against who you are. We've turned against the identity that you've given us by making us in your image. We've tried to fashion all sorts of alternative identities and lifestyles and purposes out of this world and out of our own feelings, and none of them, not one of them has delivered to us anything that brings life and freedom and joy please help us to turn back to you to look to you afresh to rejoice in the one who made us to see afresh that we are fearfully and wonderfully made and deeply loved that this might shape us Lord that it might be obvious to those around us who don't have a clear sense of who they are and that we might have opportunity to point them to you. Father, you know every heart in this room, every person bowed before you, you know the struggles that we may or may not have. Lord, if there are those among us who are deeply wrestling with this, please minister to them by your Holy Spirit today. Please comfort them. They don't need any more unsettling. Please help them and comfort them, Lord, with your word and what you've you've said to us today from it. Please put people around them who love them and who can help them navigate this season. We commit each other to you. We thank you that we can be here together this morning and that we don't just have an identity as your children, but we have an identity as the people of God. What an awesome thing to belong to you and to belong to you together. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.